Hello, good morning, and welcome to another podcast with me, Mike Figgis, and I'm joined again this morning by... Hi, this is Ali Aguilar. Today we're going to talk about a film I made in 1999, came out in 2000, called Time Code. There's a lot to talk about, and so I'm very happy to have Ali with me today. The film came out, as I said, in 2000, and... It's, let's say, marketing tag at the time was it was the first real-time feature film ever made. So let's start at the beginning. How did you get the idea to write and make Timecode? I did a film called Miss Julie. Yeah. Miss Julie, a Strindberg play. And I decided at that time we shot it on Super 16 film. I liked the mobility of the camera, the ease of, of shooting, etc., etc. And so... To save time, and if I'm honest, because I also had become much more interested in in the idea of being a cinematographer myself, Mm -hmm. having that direct contact with the actors. And I had a wonderful main cinematographer, Benoit Delhomme. Mm -hmm. So on Miss Julie, I discussed with Benoit the idea of shooting two cameras all the time. Mm -hmm. And he was in agreement with that. I did some research. The camera I was using was called an Arton. Yeah. So Arton had developed a very beautiful camera in in competition with Ariflex. Mm-hmm. So I had my own Arton camera. And Arton had developed a special magazine, the thing that the film goes into. Normally um, on Super 16 or on 35mm, you're restricted to a take of about... Eight or nine minutes, I think, okay. if I recall correctly. Arton had developed a magazine which would take twice that load. Okay. So we're talking about getting on for 17, 18 minutes. Great. I was very intrigued by the idea of shooting longer takes. Mm-hmm. Something that once video, digital came along, was a given. But I liked the idea that the actors didn't have to stop every five or six minutes mm-hmm. in the typical take that you'd get in cinema, <clears throat> that we could run for 15, 16, 17 minutes. And Miss Julie was a play that was adapted for cinema. I wanted the actors to come totally prepared. I wanted them to know the entire script as if they were doing a theatre piece. The reason for this is most cinema actors don't know the whole script. They don't learn their lines. What they do is they tend to look at their lines the night before. Mm -hmm. They wait for the camera rehearsal. They'll practice their lines again. And then you do multiple takes. If they're working with David Mamet, they'd be in trouble (laughs) because they always start adding things like kind of, you know, whatever. He insists on that you say the lines exactly. Tarantino, too, apparently. Well, they both have huge egos and they're both writers, so the, the idea that you should corrupt their genius work is probably goes against the grain. For me, <laughs> if an actor can improve what I've written, I'm more than happy. Yeah. But this is Strindberg, so you want... I wanted them to be in complete control of the drama. I wanted to shoot in sequence, mm-hmm. and I wanted to shoot two cameras that would save so much time in terms of getting the angles that I would need as an editor later on. So armed with this wonderful innovation of the long magazines, we started shooting two cameras. Mm -hmm. Now, normally it's like the main camera and then a second camera, but thankfully Bunma was open to the idea that both cameras were kind of A cameras. Okay. 
we built a set which was a huge sort of studio set of a kitchen mm -hmm. the entire drama took place in the kitchen yep. the lighting was a huge soft light nice the entire ceiling was a soft light mm -hmm. and it was midsummer night in sweden so right i wanted this soft light the advantage of that was there were no shadows because mm -hmm. it was a huge soft light which meant that the boom the guy holding the microphone could also go anywhere they wanted without creating a shadow. That's always a problem in standard film yeah. lighting. It also meant that the cameras could pretty much go anywhere and it would be lit. Mm -hmm. So the only thing to watch out for was that we didn't shoot each other. That Bunma wasn't in my shot and I wasn't in his. And for that, we added something to the standard film camera, mm -hmm. which was a monitor. Right. No, a big enough monitor so that I didn't have to have my eye on the eyepiece. Mm -hmm. In other words, rather like driving a car, I could check my wing mirror and see exactly where Bunoir was. He could see me mm -hmm. and we could avoid each other. We could actually almost visually negotiate and improvise the shots during these long 15-minute takes. And so uh, technically we were all set up. So we do these wonderful long takes on two cameras. Now... I could see where he was and what he was getting, but I couldn't really see his shot. And in the same, he couldn't see mine. Mm -hmm. So we were then kind of duty-bound to watch both those takes before we signed off and said, let's move to the next scene. Hmm. Now, the good news was they were long takes. The bad news were, you know, watch, you shoot a 15-minute take, you want to play it back? You have to watch the whole thing. You have to watch 30 minutes of playback. Yeah. So now you're losing time. Yeah. When you shoot on film, mm -hmm. the big technical innovation was you could also record on tape at mm. the same time. You'd get a, a little tap out of the camera. It would record onto this machine. And then, um, you know, you take the cassette out and you plug it in. And I had two playback machines. Yeah. To save time, I hit on an idea. I said, why don't we just line them up roughly mm -hmm. and then at the same time turn both machines on side by side with their monitors. Yeah. And so we started to watch Miss Julie as a split-screen film. Mm -hmm. It saved 50% of the time. It also got me fascinated. Two cameras on the same subject at the same time because I found I was getting much more information mm -hmm. psychologically. I couldn't analyze it above that but I loved it yeah and the long story short there is that in Miss Julie which is a period film there is a split screen I remember seduction yeah and the scene is very very powerful interestingly when the film came out it dismayed a lot of people who felt it was totally inappropriate for a period film to have a split screen yeah. as if technology had to be appropriate to genre when you when you start developing ideas that that involve the frame yeah realize the frame is very traditional and you, same in painting mm -hmm. anyway so i came out of that experience with a very excited and stimulated idea which which was the idea of split screen mm -hmm. um i was keeping tabs on new technology anyway and i was aware of the fact that cameras are now coming out that would shoot longer than 30 minutes yeah you know? um and also of a of a kind of of a caliber and a quality that was good enough let's say for projection and blowing up mm -hmm. so i started to write in my notebook 
I was on the train, I was going to Newcastle, and I was writing about the possibility of a totally experimental film mm-hmm. that would be split screen. Yeah. Picking up on all the ideas of, of, that I'd seen in Miss Julie. And in that same notebook, a page later, I kind of go, well, split screen, what, how about four screens, you know? Yeah. And I think I went as far as how about six screens, mm-hmm. and then I came back to four. And I conceived on that train journey a very simple plot. I mean, to be honest, the plot was just something that would allow the, the experiment. So I devised a very basic, you know, set of characters mm-hmm. who could exist in four screens and started to make notes about how how this could technically be set up. Mm-hmm. I had an idea of a budget of maybe a thousand pounds or something like that okay. to do this as an experiment in London. Mm-hmm. I had actor friends who I knew would probably jump in and help me. Sure. I figured I could get the cameras. So that that was the genesis of Timecode. I just wanted to go back to Miss Julie. You said that you'd been interested in being a cinematographer. Was that the the first time you operated a camera on Miss Julie? I had bought a Super 8 camera. I'd shot stuff with my mm. kids and I'd made a little experimental short films on Super 8. Mm-hmm. And then another rather wonderful French cinematographer, Jean-Francois Robin, he mm-hmm. shot Betty Blue. Ah, okay. He was my cinematographer on the Browning version. And at right. a certain point, he did something which no other cinematographer had ever done to me. Quite the opposite, in fact. We were shooting a scene, big scene with lots of kids and everything, and, and shooting two or three cameras. Mm-hmm. And he said, why don't you operate one of the cameras? Mm. And I said, oh, it's 35 millimeter. And I said, no, it's, it's not so complicated. And he mm. gave me a quick lesson on the wheels that you have to use to operate a big camera, you know, on the tripod, mm-hmm. and um, and turned me loose, and I was hooked. You mm-hmm. know? And as soon as I looked through the viewfinder, I thought, this is what I want to do, because now I'm in contact with the actors, yeah, uh, which I never felt before on filmmaking. So that was my introduction. And then when I did, the next film was Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah. I had bought a Super 16 camera. Nice. I'd shot some stuff on it. I got used to it. And then with another great cinematographer, Declan Quinn, yeah. I, I said, look, I want to shoot as well. And he mm. said, that's okay. So Leaving Las Vegas was pretty much shot all the way through on two cameras. Okay. And again, it was A and B cameras. I always let him light it and have, as it were, officially the main camera. And then yeah. I'd find some really good angle and I would shoot maybe a much tighter shot mm-hmm. from another angle. Okay. So I was, I was totally hooked on the idea of me being at least one of the cinematographers, that to me it was an essential thing. So how does Timecode go from being a a thousand-pound experiment in London with your actor friends to having a bigger budget and then shooting, I I think you shot over three weeks, or Mm -hmm. you did 21 takes or something? Mm -hmm. Um, We'll get to that. How does it go from that to being shot in Los Angeles with a host of well-known actors? After leaving Las Vegas, I got a deal Mm -hmm. at Sony Pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, through a, a remarkable, if tricky kind of guy called John Kelly. So yeah. you could look up John Kelly. He was a legend, mm-hmm. <clears throat> ran studios and um, had worked with pretty much every great filmmaker. Right. And then he retired. He bought an island. Nice. <clears throat> he married somebody's widow. Oh, David Lean's widow. He bought this island and retired. And then at a certain point, I think he got bored and he decided to come back. Yeah. So he 
he then took over the ailing MGM studio and, and he bought Leaving Las Vegas. Nice. The reason he bought it was because he was an ex-bass player. He loved jazz. He loved my jazz side. He loved to film. Mm -hmm. He bought it and he put the entire weight of the studio behind it. And it ended up with you know all the Academy nominations mm -hmm. and, and, and Nicholas winning. So he then kind of got back into the saddle and then took over Sony Pictures. And so he said, come to Sony. Mm -hmm. And he gave me a deal. So the only time I've had a kind of studio deal. Yeah. My own parking spot. Nice. An office, three people working for me, all that cliched stuff. And part of that deal was that I had to show them everything I was going to think about making. And everything I showed them, they turned down. Mm -hmm. Funny enough, a Miles Davis biopic, oh. you know, which then later got made with the same act. Don Cheadle? With Cheadle. I'd have loved to have seen your yeah. version of it. My version was 20 years earlier. Yeah. So, you know, it would have been the younger Miles Davis and it became the older Miles Davis. Yeah. Um, some terrific scripts. They all, they turned everything down. Yeah. And so John Kelly and I had this rather nice relationship mm -hmm. where he and I would go and have lunch once a month. That's nice. Some, some very nice restaurants. And we'd talk about jazz. He had been great friends with Charlie Parker's widow. Okay. And his godfather was a guy called Dave Tuff, who is considered by many people to be one of the greatest jazz drummers of all time. Okay. But pretty much unheard of. Okay. Except I knew who he was because he was one of my father's heroes. Mm -hmm. So this was a big bonding thing between me and John. At one of these lunches, he said, so what are you up to? And I said, oh, this will make you laugh, you know. Um, and I pitched him time code. I wasn't pitching it. I said, I'm going to do this in London as mm -hmm. an experiment. Ha, ha, ha. And he looked at me and he said, well, why are you doing it in London? And I said, I don't know. It was just, it's an experiment. He said, but this is called Sony Pictures. <laughs> and we make cameras. And we make all things video. Do you want to come and do it as a studio picture? Mm -hmm. Could you do it for like five or six million? And I went, yeah, I probably could do it for that amount. Mm -hmm. I mean, for them, it's nothing. Of course, but yeah. Bit of a bump from a thousand pounds to six million. Yes. Even though, of course, you know that that's going to be absorbed by studio costs, etc. So he said, yeah, come and do it here. Mm-hmm. And then he said, he's very mischievous. He said, just do me one favor. He said, I want you to pitch it mm -hmm. to the entire board of Sony Pictures. <laughs> he said, I'll green light it. You don't have to worry about it. I just want to be there when you pitch it. <laughs> so we did. We had this very humorous day where I went in and talked about shooting four video cameras simultaneously for 96 minutes mm -hmm. with 35 actors improvising mm -hmm. and just watching them all kind of shaking their heads and going, in disbelief, like, you know, what has John Kelly given us this time? This <laughs> how could we even market this, you know? So that that was how it got to be. No, I think I said in an earlier podcast, my entire life has been based on chance and fate and being in the right place or the wrong place at the right time. Mm -hmm. This was a perfect example of that, just having lunch with this guy and, and saying. And, yeah, he was sort of brave enough to greenlight it. Didn't. He was powerful enough <laughs> yeah, to okay. play God if he wanted to. And, you know, it's chump change. Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah. All right. So you've got the green light. And then how did you go about sort of the casting process and sort of production, like pre-production actually on this? Well, the casting was a combination of 
asking people that I already knew, mm-hmm. people like Carl McLaughlin and um, and Stellan Skarsgård I'd mm-hmm. met um, through Miss Julie uh, mm-hmm. uh, screening and things like that. Julian Sands, yeah. who I'd worked with many, many times. Yep. Danny Houston. Yeah, he's he's great. I like him. You know, that was my kind of nucleus of of, yeah. of, of friend actors who I said, you know, just come. It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. And they all said, sure, why not? And then I had really good casting directors. And we just I started meeting a lot of actors I'd never met before, Mia Maestro and people like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have a list of, they'd come in and say, what's my character? And I said, I don't know, really. I'm just looking for interesting actors. Mm-hmm. And then I will give you a character. Mm-hmm. In some instances, on day one, some of the actors did or didn't really have a character yet. I said, oh, you're kind of working in this film business, but I'm not quite sure what your role is. But you'll, you'll develop it as you go along. Mm-hmm. You'll see, you know. So for the most part, those actors, of course, were up for, for an adventure. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, how did they respond to that? I think they were, you know, they were initially very excited. I, but I also said things like, look, there's going to be no hair and makeup. Mm-hmm. There's no wardrobe. You just, every day come in, anything you want to wear, choose it yourself, your mm-hmm. own clothes. You will drive yourself to the studio. Yeah, and no this perks. is to Salma Hayek. And yeah. You will do your own makeup. Mm-hmm. You'll get your own lunch. Um, but you'll also have to, you're going to have to work very hard because we're, kind of writing this as we go along yeah because you do have in the film i mean just a plethora of like very well-known actors you mm-hmm. know saffron burrows and gene triplehorn selma hayek stellan skarsgård uh holly hunter mm-hmm. i think you had laurie metcalf but she wasn't in the final mix yeah unfortunately i mean yeah. i had situations like we shot the film 16 times 15 yeah. times okay and the last week we were running out of time the studio by then had you know, John Kelly, as I say, a wonderful man, but, you know, I showed him. He wanted to see dailies. Mm-hmm. He saw this real-time experimentation going on, and the first week was kind of interesting, wonderful chaos. Yeah. And he, I, he left me a voice message saying, um, nobody seems to have a fucking clue what, <laughs> what they're doing. You're the director. Do you? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pulling the plug next week. Okay. So, uh, okay, we've got a week left. Um, and then I think one of the actors said, well, why don't we shoot the film twice a day? Okay. So we started shooting it twice a day. At that point, Laurie Metcalf, who is a genius, yeah. had a problem. Because okay. she was shooting, I think, The Roseanne Show. She was, yeah. And she could only shoot my film in the mornings. Right. And then in the afternoon, she could, she wasn't available. So she brought in a depth. Glenn Headley. Um, who would then do a completely different interpretation of mm. the same character. The therapist. The therapist. Yeah. So we had those situations. Holly Hunter came in halfway through the shoot. Mm-hmm. I met her at a dinner party mm-hmm. with Stellan. And she said, Stellan tells me what you're doing. It sounds amazing. <laughs> and I said, well, do you want to be in it? Mm-hmm. And she went, yeah. I said, okay, we'll turn up tomorrow and I'll, I'll throw you in. That's fantastic. And she turned up. The studio, there was a shit fit because there was no contract. Yeah. Her agent went crazy Mm -hmm. and up until 10 minutes before we were starting to shoot at 10 in the morning Mm -hmm. 11 in the morning (laughs) i wasn't allowed to speak to her and they did a one-line deal memo Mm -hmm. one page deal memo and then i just threw her in and i said you're a film executive yeah you don't really know what's going on (laughs) just her character (laughs) um you'll you'll find out yeah 
So she had no, she'd never seen anything. She had no idea. She jumped into a feature length film. Yeah. And she was brilliant from yeah. literally from the first moment. So you have, the film is in, uh, set on four screens. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how you sort of kept track of the action on each of the four screens. How did you sort of coordinate the real time goings on for each of the stories that are happening? I know it's all one story, but since like you you had four people operating cameras, including one of them was you. Yeah. So how did you sort of keep track of what was going to happen, or did you sort of figure that out whilst you were doing it? Everybody's first response was, "Oh, so Mike, you were in the trailer, right? Watching all <laughs> the cameras on, <clears throat> you know, on remote, or you know, like they were sending you stuff." Mm -hmm. I said, "No, no, I was operating cam yeah. camera four. And well, how did you know what the other cameras were doing? I said, "Well, it was a." It's structured like a piece of music. Hmm. We talked about this, about music and how I see the world. So I wrote the entire script on music paper. Hmm. So if you can imagine a string quartet, so yeah. there are four lines and there are bar lines indicating what the time is. Yeah. So I wrote everybody's part out on four separate lines like that mm -hmm. with very, very clear timings for the actors. Yeah. So I... Rather than giving them a conventional script, I would give them a timing sheet. Okay. Saying, okay, you have to be on camera three by minute 28. Okay. And you're talking, your dialogue will, will last for three minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you will cross to this other camera, which will be on the other side of the room. Mm -hmm. So it sounds very complicated, but actors very quickly pick up, like Dan says, pick up choreographic ideas. Okay. And until we actually shot the first film, all this was theory right? and supposition. I knew that the first take would be sublime chaos. Yeah. Everybody had their bits of music. We used our, our rehearsals were them all sitting like in a classroom mm -hmm. with a pencil and an eraser mm -hmm. and looking at a time chart. And I would talk through the story in terms of also the cameramen were the present, so they knew what, what to do. And we plotted out, let's just call it the choreography of the film, mm -hmm. with this very fundamentally simple plot of betrayal, power struggle, all the usual tropes of the 36 dramatic situations. The main characters were delineated, mm -hmm. which were Saffron Burroughs' character, Stellan Skarsgård, Xander Berkeley as the kind of head of the little studio. Yeah. Um, the therapist. Yeah. Uh, Danny Houston was a security guard. He was. Julian Sands, bless him, said, I don't really want to have a plot character. I just want to be a masseuse. He was, yeah. And I'll massage whoever I feel like. And I went, sure. Okay. <laughs> a wannabe filmmaker who was someone who was failing in his career, you know, who was trying to make a low-budget film. I remember, yeah. You had Gene Triplehorn's character. Gene Triplehorn and... Salma. That was interesting because up until three days before we started shooting, maybe even two days before we started shooting, I was trying to get a completely different idea. Mm -hmm. I was trying to get Andy Garcia okay. to be the husband mm -hmm. of Salma Hayek. Right. And for the, her to be unfaithful to him. Mm -hmm. and, and he ummed and awed, and I think the concept of the character that I'd created for him didn't appeal to him. Mm -hmm. So at the final moment, he said no. Mm -hmm. Jean Triplehorn, I'd put her down as being a studio head. Yes. She looks very like Sherry Lansing. She does, actually, yeah. 
And I wanted her to play Sherry Lansing. Yeah. She was very nervous about playing a Sherry Lansing type character. Yeah. And so the last day I went to her and I said, look, okay, I've got an alternative. Um, how about playing Salma Hayek's lover? Yeah. Uh, instead. And so being a paranoid, coke sniffing, mm-hmm. you know, control freak. And, uh, and I'd come up with the idea of the microphone putting it into the handbag and so on. <laughs> and uh, she said yes straight away. Okay. So actually that was a great serendipitous, you know, moment with Andy turning it down. Mm-hmm. So that's how that character came about. Radically changed the whole feel of the film mm-hmm. for the better. Yeah. Um, Jean Triplehorn's performance is absolutely brilliant. She's great in it, yeah. I don't think she liked it. No? Uh, I've tried to contact her and, like, praise her, and I've never heard from her since. And interesting, a lot of the actors were somehow dissatisfied with, with their role in the film and somehow mm. that it wasn't quite what they were expecting. There's also a, a scene in the film where there's an earthquake. Um, four scenes. Uh, yeah, sorry, four <laughs> scenes in the film. Was it difficult to get the timings correct when well, the you were first, doing that? As I said, the first version of this yeah. was this you know, sublime chaos yeah. where the reality suddenly hit everybody that if it says on your timesheet, mm-hmm. be there at minute six, and yeah. if it says on your timesheet, there's going to be an earthquake at minute ten, it's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. All four cameras have to have an earthquake because you can't have a real earthquake. So how do you fake an earthquake? Yeah. Well, the actors have to behave as if the ground is shaking. Mm-hmm. The cameras have to behave as if the cameramen are being affected by the earthquake. Yeah. And unless you all do it exactly at minute 10, yeah. you'll get a staggered earthquake that starts on camera one, picks up on camera four, you know, and, and maybe camera three is completely forgotten about it and yeah. missed the cue. So it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So th- the first outing, you get this mismatch of timings. They're more or less on time, but they're mm-hmm. not on time. Yeah. The actors who were embarrassed by doing earthquake acting suddenly realize you have to do that acting. Yeah. You're not going to be protected by special effects here. No. The system that I devised was that we would shoot the film, we would meet in the morning, all the actors turn up at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You're responsible for your own makeup, your hair, your wardrobe. You're responsible for finding your way to your starting place in the film. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, we would all synchronize our digital watches. Okay. I gave everybody a cheap digital watch, accurate to a second, you know. Mm-hmm. We would count down at 10 o'clock and then exactly at 10 o'clock, boom, synchronize our watches. Mm-hmm. And then from then on in, I said, okay, at 11 o'clock, we start filming. At 11 o'clock, all four cameras will turn on, mm-hmm. regardless. And then they will all run for 97 minutes or whatever the length of the the tape was. Your responsibility now is entirely personal. You have to be in the right place at the right time. There is no director Mm -hmm. to tell you. Take responsibility. And so take one, day Mm -hmm. one, that's what happened. At 11 o'clock on the dot, the cameras turn on and we start filming time code. Mm -hmm. Therefore, at 12... 35, mm-hmm. whatever it is, the tape runs out. Mm-hmm. We have arrived at some kind of conclusion. Yeah. And everybody then cuts automatically because the tapes run out. We mm-hmm. come back to base. Mm-hmm. I then say, okay, go and have lunch. Mm-hmm. Find a restaurant, get a receipt, we'll pay you back, but go and get your own lunch. There's no yeah. catering. Off they go. I and the technicians then make copies of the tapes. Okay. They become vital. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. 
those copies are then time code synchronized mm -hmm. and outputted onto four screens. Okay. So by the time the actors come up, they come into a room, mm -hmm. there are four screens ready with to hit play. Okay. I've also set up a little audio mixer. Okay. And I've brought maybe 60 CDs with me. Mm -hmm. And I have inputs from all of the four screens, mm -hmm. audio inputs, going to channels one, two, three, and four. Chan channels five, six, seven, and eight, I have free for music, mm -hmm. or effects of earthquakes or whatever. And I literally live mix the film mm -hmm. based on my music. I'm, in a sense, I'm now reading the music. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. Um, and the actors sit down and they start watching. I hit play and they're watching. First time in history yeah. that actors have been in a feature film and three hours later they're watching the film with score. Mm -hmm. With score is a vital piece of information here because they're hearing emotional music. Yeah. They're hearing Wagner, they're hearing Miles Davis, mm -hmm. they're hearing... Hendrix, whatever, yeah. anything to beef up what's the drama, basically. Yeah. And I'm making very specific selections of the audio that they're going to listen to because I know the important plot points should be coming up right now on camera three, uh -huh. now it's coming up on camera two, and so on. So I live mix my way through the film. That's great. And they're gobsmacked. The actors are like, what the fuck? And they're, <laughs> and they're seeing themselves, they're actors. Yeah, they're seeing themselves on screen. Now maybe, you know, they're perhaps a little bit iffy about. I don't like that shot, but sure. you know, tough shit. But they, they, they suddenly now they understand what I've been talking about for two weeks of mm -hmm. preparation. Yeah, they see how it works. We finish the film, and I kind of we have a wonderful moment. Mm -hmm. and they're exhilarated, and then I say, okay, well let's let's start making notes now. Look, go back to your music paper. Mm -hmm. Okay, minute three, first fuck up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You need, you are early Selma. You need to be a little bit later. You yeah. see her rubbing out, the pencil going, okay, you need to be there. And they're all like making notes on, okay. their, on their music paper. Um, I say to the cameraman, okay, you know, you shot me at that point. I was in your shot. <laughs> so we need to figure out a way of avoiding each other. Maybe you need to zoom in at that point. So, because the wide shot is too revealing. Yeah. So technically, we're doing the same thing as the actors. So, in other words, everybody's kind of observed and learned from a mistake, mm -hmm. vitally. And now they're adjusting. And it's fantastic. You can yeah. see the energy now of like, oh, can't wait to do version two. Yeah. So based on all these notes and these adjustments and also things like, well, how did it work? Mm -hmm. I mean, how was your speaking? How was, was that funny? Because it's kind of comedic. Yeah. So we start to kind of fixing all the technical things. I'm saying you don't have to worry about, let's say, the drama too much. I just, we need to, first of all, make sure that the choreography works. Right. But of course, at the same time, every actor is trying to improve their part. Well, of course. And I am at the same time as a director giving them notes and saying, okay, you should go a little bit, that was a little bit too hysterical, pull that back or this. Mm -hmm. So we're now making those emotional actor adjustments also. In other words, we're in business now. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's how it started and that's how it continued. So you said you had the plot points kind of sort of figured out, but how, how much improvisation was there in the actual dialogue that was going on screen? The dialogue was entirely improvised. Entirely, okay. Except for the final speech from Mia Maestro where she talks about, 
you know, a digital innovation <laughs> and uh, the Soviet montage. Uh-huh. And I actually found a wonderful woman who was a kind of film academic mm-hmm. to actually sort of structure that speech a little bit more mm-hmm. because uh, it was a, a lot of complicated references and and and, and finally actually in the last couple of takes Mia actually learned that speech and, right. and we we made that work the way, mm. rather beautifully the way it does okay there is a I, I do remember towards the end when maybe it's in the middle but when Stellan Skarsgård's character meets the aspiring filmmaker it's at the end yeah yeah and he tells them that this is how it works in Hollywood uh, I really like that part where he sort of he says this is how it works we'll do your shit yeah and you'll do ours. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. You're obviously very talented, uh, very naive, yeah. very young. He's just done a, another line of coke, and yeah. you know it's about to get shot by a jealous lover. But yeah. um, from my point of view, uh, as a, I would say, comedic writer, I started to bring in these elements of my own experiences with studios mm-hmm. and the kind of. <laughs> bizarre crass situations i'd found myself in and of course i'd asked the actors also to enjoy playing agents and creatives as well yeah so they were everybody was having fun in a way making small moments of revenge Um, oh yeah i mean there's definitely a critique in the film of sort of what Mm. happens in hollywood so you said um you said you shot it over 16 days you did 16 I looked at my notes the other day, and I think I think it was like a three-week period mm-hmm. because there was a hiatus in the middle because actually what happened was I think I got to a certain point mm-hmm. where technically it was starting to work, yeah. and I think I got this um, rather kind of to-the-point message from John Kelly mm-hmm. and realized that the clock was now loudly ticking. So I thought I, you know, I'd been so busy both shooting and just dealing mechanically with with detail Mm -hmm. i thought i need to take a break so i think we took like three days off okay from filming and i had three days just actually working on the structure Mm -hmm. and then trying to fix certain plot point issues and you know the story basically Mm -hmm. and then in conjunction with what i now knew worked and what i felt was achievable with the cameras I was absolutely enthralled mm-hmm. and fascinated by what I'd uncovered, yeah. potentially. And also, I realized I didn't really have time to really go as far as I wanted to because I had this now pressure to deliver a story. Yeah. And so I had to kind of be very cruel to myself. And my creative idea, which was like, you know, you take a pause now on the innovation stuff with right. the cameras. So I'd started to discover the most amazing things about using four cameras in a... There's a bit in the film where all four cameras zoom into an extreme close-up just on a mouth. Okay. I think one camera's a little bit late, but basically... Mm-hmm. And I started to become fascinated as an experimental filmmaker with yeah. the idea of, like, cameras have a life of their own. Mm-hmm. So the, there is a camera plot going on, which is a, sec, a separate kind of aesthetic from the bullshit plot that is going on. That's not a conversation you then have with the head of a studio. <laughs> no. Funnily enough. Um, you are, they, nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, and clearly you don't either. So I'm pulling the plug. So, um, yeah. So we took that hiatus, and then we came back, and then I, I think you know one of the actors said, why don't we shoot it twice a day? And right. all the actors said, yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. So we ended up 
Now, shooting at 11 o'clock till 12.30, they yeah. go and grab their lunch. We then didn't have time to review. Okay. Because then we would shoot again at, say, 3 o'clock mm-hmm. till 4.30. Mm-hmm. This is wintertime in L.A., so right. the days are shorter, too. Yeah. So, and the final take is, is the final day. It's the final take. You know, that's the take that was released. Oh, know, okay. okay. Where there was an added, let's say, theatrical dynamic, which was they all knew we were never going to do it again. So right. everybody was on, you know, one actor that I, having really a tough time with, you know, uh, finally delivered what I asked on okay. the last take, uh, without naming names. But, you know, there were, there were, you know, obviously so many actors, there were bound to be these kind of tensions as well. Of course. And one of the actors, you know, I said, hey, how's it going? You know, are you enjoying yourself? Well, she said, yeah, you know, but I thought my part would be more important. <laughs> and I went, you're on screen all the time. She went, yeah, no, but I meant, meant my character would be more important, uh-huh. as in a CEO rather than, you know, the secretary or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow, actors are so strange, you know. And, of course, we had this combination of stars, mm-hmm. And people that I'd brought in who were completely unknown. Right. Completely unknown. So uh, very interesting to observe how the alpha and beta, like Salma took over as makeup stylist. Okay. I mean, she was very kind. That's nice. She actually would like bring stuff in and she'd do other people's makeup in in the bathroom. Yeah, that's very nice. That's nice.